Yeah, it's interesting sometimes when you refer to one person as a team. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do. You know? Music player, come on up. <laughs> yeah, I guess when you're together, you make a team if you're more than one. So that's a good way to think about it. Um, it's really good to be with you guys again tonight. I really, my wife and I both enjoyed our time with you last time we visited. We stayed with Rian and Deborah. This time we'll stay with uh, Phil and Esther tonight. And we just spent time this afternoon with Reinhardt and uh, Yonri. It was really good just getting to know each other and hear each other's testimonies or hear their testimonies. And uh, so we're glad to be here. And uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to serve you by looking at God's word together. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14. When Rion asked me to come um, for both tonight and and next Sunday evening as well, while he's away, um, I thought that we could turn to Luke chapter 14 and look at verses 25 to 33. And we'll do so in two parts. So we won't work our way through the entire passage tonight. So if you're mindful of the time and you're seeing the amount of progress we're making in the passage, don't freak out. I'm not going to keep you here all night. Um, at some point, we will stop and then just come back next week and, and finish uh, together. Okay, so Luke chapter 14, um, we'll start in verse 25, but before we do, let me just remind you of the context. It's always helpful when you're sort of parachuting right into the middle of any book to get an idea of where you are uh, in that book. So in the Gospel of Luke, when we come to chapter 14, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, literally. He's traveling to Jerusalem, and this is the last time that he will travel to Jerusalem uh, in his earthly ministry. Uh, When he gets to Jerusalem, this final time, it's going to be where he loses his life at the cross. And Jesus knows that that is what's coming. Um, Leading up to chapter 14, three times already, he's told his disciples that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer greatly, and his arrival is going to end in his death. Listen to these words he said in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. He told his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, those are the Jewish religious leaders, and be killed. A few verses later, he said this to them, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of of men. And then later in chapter 18, Luke tells us he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. What's he referring to? He tells them, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after whipping him, they will kill him. Anyone who tells you that Jesus had no idea what was going to happen to him when he came to Jerusalem at the end of his life is just totally ignorant of these these realities. Jesus was not surprised by what happened. God was not surprised. This was the will of God unfolding for his son on earth as he went to Jerusalem to face death at the cross. Jesus knew it. And so as he's traveling here in chapter 14, I mentioned these things to say, the cross is looming before Jesus. It's in his mind. 
He knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. And you'll see how that connects with some of his words here that he speaks to the crowds. And nevertheless, even though Jesus knows that he's heading toward um, certain death at the cross, rejection, shame, dishonor, crucifixion, the worst way to die at that time in the world, even though that's true, along the way, he takes time to still perform miracles, to heal people, to perform divine miracles, and to teach, to instruct people along the way on what it means to really follow him, to be his disciple, and how to enter into the kingdom of God. So we read here, look at verse 25. We're going to see one of these instances where he's going to instruct the crowds around him. Verse 25, Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth's life, you know that this is not uncommon. Crowds constantly gathered around the Lord Jesus. They got around him partly because of his miracles. Never before had they seen a man perform the miracles that Jesus performed. And perhaps some of them wanted to see him perform miracles. Perhaps some of them wanted him to perform miracles for them. And other people often gathered around to hear his teaching. You remember what the, even the religious leaders said about him, the officers. They said, never has a man ever spoken the way this man speaks. He spoke with authority, the truth of God, not like their religious leaders. So often crowds would, would gather together. They'd travel long distances in order to listen to him. They'd even, if he started to move, they'd follow with him. They'd pick up their stuff and they'd move with them. And wherever he stopped, they'd camp where he stopped and they'd journey along the way. And that's what's happening here. And notice what Luke says. He doesn't say just a crowd, but a great crowd. And not just a great crowd, singular, but great crowds, plural. So we're talking probably about thousands of people thronging around Jesus of Nazareth. If you looked at it at a distance, it would have looked like a mob just moving along the road. And you would have wondered, what's going on? Why have all these people gathered together? And either at the front or at the center of it was Jesus journeying along the road to Jerusalem. These massive crowds of people around him. Now, surely we can assume that in this crowd, and I think it'll become even clearer once we look at Jesus' words here, but it's safe to assume that in this crowd was a mixture of people. Now, I'm not referring to a mixture of their ethnicity or their skin color or their culture or language. I'm talking about a mixture of their spiritual state in relationship to Jesus at this time. There were some who, as they journeyed with Jesus to Jerusalem, were doing so as his true disciples. They had come to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He was the Messiah. They were confessing him as so. They were convinced by his miracles, by his claims of who he was. And they had committed themselves. They wanted him to be their rabbi and Lord, and they wanted to be his disciples and followers. And so they were journeying with him as his true committed followers. But surely there were others who had not, at least yet, fully committed themselves to follow Jesus as his disciples. As I said, perhaps they thronged around him for different reasons. Maybe some just wanted to to hear his teaching for the first time, or the second, or the tenth time. 
Maybe they were just intrigued the way Herod used to love to listen to John the Baptist, even though he never repented and believed in his preaching. And again, others probably were attracted by the miracles. But for whatever reason it was, they were there and they're moving along with Jesus. Maybe some of them were just there because the crowd was there. You ever been in a situation like that? There's people like that who are just so easily swept up. You know, you kind of start running and you're looking at the guy next to you. You, What are we running to? And he goes, I don't know. I thought you knew. And yet, I don't know. There's just a frenzy, right? And it's so easy sometimes to get caught up in the hype. And man, there was a lot of hype about Jesus of Nazareth at this time. So some people may not have even known exactly why they were there, but they were there. You see, so there were people who were truly committed. They had made an informed decision about who Jesus was and that they wanted to follow him. But there were others who, who hadn't, at least not, not yet, and were there for a, a mixture for various reasons. And perhaps, now I, don't, I don't know this congregation, I don't know many of you individually well, but perhaps there's even a mixture here in our meeting tonight. Right? Um, I'm assuming, though I could be wrong, that if I asked each of you to put your hand up, who among, you, who among us here tonight would at least profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm going to assume that all, if not most of you, would probably put your hand up and at least profess to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are. And so it could be a mixture even here tonight. Some of you... Uh, probably are, may very well be, true disciples of Jesus. Okay, you, you would confess that he's the Son of God. You'd confess that he's the Christ. You'd confess that he died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive your sins so that you might be right with God and have eternal life. And you've, you've made an informed decision. You, you understand something of, of what it costs to say that he's your Lord and that you're his disciple. And you've committed to want to follow him and, and know him better. But perhaps for for some others or or someone, um, you've not yet made that informed decision. You might say, well, if I'm not a disciple, why am I here tonight at church then? I don't know. You need to answer that for yourself, right? Maybe you're here because your dad is here. Maybe you're here because your wife is here, your husband. Um, Maybe you're, you're interested in the Lord Jesus for whatever reasons, you know, maybe you come out of a really bad church background and maybe you found something online or heard something about this church from a friend or you read something about it and you thought, well, this seems like a church that maybe teaches the truth, they teach the Bible and I don't even know if I really know Jesus given the background I come out of, but, so I'm going to come and I'm just interested to come and listen and get to know the people and whatever it is. But you, you may not have yet come to that point where you've understood what it means to really leave everything to follow Jesus Christ. You've not yet embraced him in that way and made that informed decision. Perhaps that's the case even here tonight. But either way, whether you're here and you you know you haven't fully committed to Jesus yet, or you think you have but you're not sure, or you know that you actually have, Jesus' words here tonight apply to every single one of us. And I want you to listen to them here tonight. I want us all to listen to them and consider them for ourselves. Notice again there in verse 25, Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he, Jesus, turned and said to them. He turned 
and said to them. Now, I believe Luke means this to be very dramatic. I mean, you could just imagine this mass of thousands of people are moving along the dirt road here. And all of the sudden, if you were looking from a distance, it would look like a 20 20 car pile up, everybody slamming on their brakes on the freeway and bumping into each other. And and the guy toward the back is wondering, why are we all stopping? Well, it's because Jesus has stopped. Luke says, suddenly, it's, it's very abrupt. He turns, he stops walking, he turns around, he faces the crowds. I think it's quite dramatic the way Luke wants to paint it. He faces the crowds, looks them in their eyes, and says these words to them. And I want us to listen and consider his words tonight. Look at verse 26. Here's what Christ said to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees it will begin to mock him and say, Ah, this man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king who is going out to encounter another king in war does not first sit down and deliberate, consider whether he is able with 10,000 soldiers to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 soldiers. And if he is not, while the other is yet a great way off, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Some pretty strong and direct words from Jesus, aren't they? Now I trust that you knew as you came here tonight. If not, I trust you see from these words here that Being a disciple of Jesus comes with terms and conditions. What we like to call T's and C's, right? You know know what T's and C's are, right? Terms and conditions. You get this buzz on your phone and you open it up, punch in your passcode and the message drops down and says, you know, something like, congratulations, you know, you've qualified for 50,000 rand of funeral cover plus grocery benefits, right? Just text money to one, two, three, four, five. I don't know, you know, something like that. And you think, oh, it's my lucky day. I mean, wow, this is amazing. And you're ready to just go for it. And, and then you, you look down and right at the bottom, right at the end of the message is this phrase, T's and C's apply. And you think, oh, Man, I wonder what they are, right? Terms and conditions. So you go, well, I just, I got to know what these are because this is a really great offer. So you, you click the little weirdly, you know, spelled link, like the B-I-T-Y-L-2-1-Z. I think, where is this going to? But sure enough, it takes you right to the right link, right to the company and to the terms and conditions for the, the contract. And, 
And as you start to look it over, you start to see things like, here's the the terms and conditions. Um, You need to pay X amount every month for this much coverage. And and by the way, without any prior notice, we can raise your monthly premium without increasing your coverage at all. That's one of the the terms you need to agree to. Um, The next one is, if at any point you decide to to stop paying into your policy, uh, you lose coverage immediately and none of your prior premium payments will be returned to you. You forfeited that. So if you want to continue you need to continue paying. And then there's another one that says, uh, if, if you want to qualify, you can't be more than 65 years old. Or if you want to qualify, you have to submit a, a, to a medical evaluation because they want to make sure you're not going to die, right, in the next three weeks. They're going to lose a whole bunch of money on you. Um, or if you sign up, just know that there's a six-month sort of uh, waiting period in which you, you pay in your premiums, and if you die in the first six months, sorry, we don't pay you. You've got to die from month seven onward, right? He, you know, these are all terms and conditions, right? Some of them may be accurate. Some of them I might be totally making up, but, uh, but you get the idea, right? And the idea is clear. If you are not willing to agree to these terms and or if you do not, for whatever reasons, meet these conditions, then what? You can't have the policy, right? You don't qualify to have this coverage. It's, it's impossible. You just, you just can't. And that's actually what, what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is giving his conditions if we want to be his disciples. And there's three of them. He gives three conditions. And he's basically saying that if we do not agree to them, if we do not or will not meet them, then we cannot qualify to be his disciple. We can't follow him. It's really that stark and straightforward. We'll see that here in a moment. Three conditions that we must agree to, that we must know, and we must meet if we're to be the disciple of Jesus, if we're to follow him into the kingdom of God and into eternal life. Okay? Now, before we look at these conditions, as I said, we'll look, at, we'll look at one tonight and the other two next week. But just so that we really grasp the importance of these words, how significant they are, the nature of them, I want to ask and answer several other questions Uh, before we actually look at the conditions. Here's the first question, just by way of introduction to these conditions. Now, we're talking about conditions to being Jesus' disciple, right? So if we're going to understand those, we need to understand what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What's it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, generally, the word disciple just means a learner or a student, and it has the implication of also being a, a follower, it was a very common word at that time. Rabbis were very common in, in the Jewish area at that time, in the Jewish religious community, and often people would sign up to be so-and-so's student, pupil, learner. They want to take so-and-so to be their rabbi, and so they would commit themselves to learn his teachings and then to follow his ways. It was the same with Jesus of Nazareth. If you wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, or to be a disciple of Jesus meant that you would commit to being his student, to learning his teachings, to learning his ways, but not just learning them intellectually, not just merely understanding them with your mind, but it was a commitment to say, I'm going to then put into practice the teachings that I learned from him. I'm not just going to learn from his verbal teachings, but I'm going to also learn from his life. Often students would follow their rabbis and live with them 
in order that they could learn from them, not just from what they spoke, but how they lived. And they'd imitate their life as well. So to be a disciple of Jesus, it means to commit to to learning his teachings, which we find in the scriptures, and not just learning them, but living them, seeking to put them into practice in everyday life. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not just about head knowledge. It's about loving and being loyal to and obeying Jesus as the Lord of your life. Right? Second question, why is it important to be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is giving these conditions and we must meet them to be his disciple, then it raises the question, doesn't it? Why is it even important in the first place to want to be or to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth? Because if it's not that important, then don't bother me with the conditions. I'm not even that interested in being his disciple to begin with. Why is it important to be a disciple of Jesus? Here's why. Because only true disciples of Jesus Christ will enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. Full stop. There is no other way to be right with God and to live with God forever except to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 6, he said these words, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now he's speaking to people who would have called him Lord and probably professed to be his followers. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, you see, that's a true disciple, hears and does I will show you what that person is like. He is like a man who built a house, who dug deep into the ground and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because the house had been well built upon the rock. But the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke out against it, the house immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You see what he's saying? If you're not a true disciple of Jesus, if you're not a doer, not just a learner, but a doer, a follower of his teachings and of his ways, if you don't believe in his words, and live by them, he says, then you will come under the everlasting judgment of God. On the day of judgment, you will fall rather than stand on the rock. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 14? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm not a way. I'm not one of many ways. I am the way. No man comes to the Father but through, through me. Third question, to whom do Jesus' conditions apply? To whom do his conditions apply? Answer, Jesus' conditions are universal. They apply to every person, no exceptions. Notice the way he speaks He's very deliberate with his language. Look at verse 26. He says there, if anyone, 
Notice how broad that language is, how universal it is. If anyone comes to me and does not, notice verse 27. He says, whoever, doesn't matter who you are, whoever does not meet this condition. And then again, look at verse 33. He says there, so therefore, any one of you who does not. You see how broad and inclusive his language is here. He's saying every single individual person, man, woman, child, boy, girl, old, young, single, married, divorced, widowed, children, no children, white, black, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter what kind of home you were raised in, if it was a Christian home or not. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Doesn't matter whether as an infant or as an adult. Doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. Doesn't matter if you have, you consider yourself a Christian. It, it doesn't matter how much money you make, what you've studied, what your status in society is, how people view you or perceive It doesn't matter. Everyone is included in these conditions. They apply to every single individual who would seek to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They apply to every one of us here tonight. Obviously, then, that that means it's vitally important that each one of us individually here tonight listen closely. We heard that in Matthew 17. This is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. We need to listen to the words of Jesus Christ tonight. And we need to examine ourselves individually to see, do I understand these conditions? Do I agree with them? Am I willing to meet them to follow Jesus? Last sort of introductory question. How rigid are Jesus' conditions? How rigid are they? Answer, Jesus' conditions are absolute. They are absolute. They are firm. They are fixed. He will not lower his standard. He will not remove any of these conditions for anyone. Notice again there his words. Look at verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Note those words. He cannot be my disciple. Absolute words. He says it again in verse 27. Cannot be my disciple. Verse 33. Cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not say, well, if you don't agree to these conditions, you, you might be able to still be my disciple. Well, maybe we can negotiate a different way for you. Everyone else has to meet these conditions, but for you, I'll make an exception. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, uh, you know, if you're not willing or able to meet these conditions, you can, you know, you can be a disciple, but you'll be sort of like a second level disciple, you know, just kind of less, less committed compared to all those more radical, fully committed disciples. Or, or, you know, if you're not willing to meet these conditions, we won't call you a disciple you know, that's for like really committed first class um, Christians. We'll call you maybe like a carnal Christian or we'll call you something else, but we won't call you a disciple. You'll still have eternal life. You'll still make it in the end, but, 
You just won't technically be a, a disciple. Now he doesn't say that. He says, if you do not agree to and meet these conditions, you cannot be my disciple. End of story. Literally, he's saying, it's impossible for you to be my disciple. That's what cannot means. It is impossible for you to follow me and be my disciple if you do not meet these conditions. They're fixed. They're firm. Which then, obviously, the implication means if we don't meet these conditions, we can't have eternal life. Because if following Jesus, you follow that, right? If following Jesus is the only way to have eternal life and be in the coming kingdom of God, and if we're not willing to meet these conditions, then we can't have eternal life. We will not be in the kingdom of God when Christ comes back. You see what's at stake here. It's the highest stakes. The importance can't get any higher. So if, you, if you're serious about your soul, I'm going to assume you are. If you're serious about your soul and where you're going to spend eternity and whether you're a true disciple of Jesus or not, because I hope you know it's possible to be what's called a false disciple of Jesus. I mean, really, that's an oxymoron. Like those two words, you can't be a false actual disciple. What I mean is you can claim to be, but not truly be. But the only way to really have eternal life is to be a true disciple of Jesus. And so... If you care about that, and you really want to be a disciple of Jesus, then I hope you you sense the importance then of, I want to know these conditions then. I want to make sure I understand them. And I want to make sure I really am committing to them. So perhaps, as I said earlier, for some of us, this may be the first time maybe God will open your mind to understand um, the real nature of the conditions to follow Jesus Christ. Um, And you'll want to do that because you see Jesus is worth it, whatever the cost. Maybe for some of us, it's more of a reminder. It's a sort of a New Year kind of checkup, spiritual checkup. How are we doing as followers of Jesus? Maybe we've made this commitment in the past, but it never hurts. It always helps to remind ourselves of what Jesus requires of us as his followers and to make some adjustments where we need to make them. Okay, so three conditions to being Jesus' disciple. Tonight, we're going to look at the first of the three, and then we'll look at the other two next week, God willing. So first condition to be Jesus' disciple is this. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you must prioritize Jesus above all other people. Okay? We must prioritize Jesus above all other people. Look there again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if you you want to follow him, strong, he says, you have to be willing to hate even your closest family members. These should be shocking words to us, right? If we really think about them, they ought to cause us to pause and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a a proper translation? What's what's the King James say? (laughs) You know, what's this say? Tell me, what's the Greek, what's the original Greek word? You know, you want to know what it is? Hate. It's a perfectly fine translation. 
The word means hate. Okay? But the reason why we pause is because we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus commanded us as his disciples to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he did, didn't he? Didn't he say that by this all men shall know that you are my disciples? How? By your love for one another. Jesus said, you're to love your enemies, even in your own household. Pray for those who persecute you. Didn't Paul, guided by the Spirit of Christ, say in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? He did. So what's going on here? Is Jesus literally actually saying that we are to abhor and feel utter hatred and, and anger and animosity toward our closest family members? Are we to, from the heart, wish evil upon them? Are we to withhold our affections from them? Are we to seek to do them harm, either to their reputation or maybe even to them personally? I mean, that's what it means to hate. Are we to pray that bad things happen to them and maybe even be the instrument of that bad, that evil that comes into their life, act maliciously and viciously toward them? Uh, I think if you know Jesus, you're going, no, that's not what Jesus is telling us to do here. That's not what he means by hating our closest family members. Well, if that's not what he means, you know, be disrespectful to them. Well, what is he saying then? As I've already said, I think what Jesus is saying is this. We must prioritize our relationship with him over all other earthly relationships, even our closest ones. I believe what he's saying is that we must love Jesus supremely, okay? Supremely. We must so love him even more than we love our very flesh and blood family members. In fact, we must love him so much and be so devoted to him that it appears to our family members or to others who might be watching how we interact with our family members as though we hated them. Let me tell you why I I take it this way. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said very similar words to these words here in Luke 14. He said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 37. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now, we just celebrated Christmas, right? And what were the angels shouting from the heavens to the shepherds at night in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and peace among men on earth. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace on earth. We ought to stop and go, wait a minute. Okay, you got to explain. Jesus, help us. Explain, please. Tell us more. And he does. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Here's what I mean. For I have come to set a man against his father and to set a daughter against her mother, to set a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Some of you don't need that explained. You've experienced that. Then he said these words. 
Whoever loves, notice this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, I think he's saying the same thing there as he is here in Luke 14, just he's saying it differently. He's not saying we ought to feel utter hatred and abhor our family members. He's calling us to love him more than we love them, to be so devoted to him that at times it will look like and feel like, even to our closest family members who don't follow him, that we hate them because we're so devoted and committed to following him. Really, I think what Jesus is saying here is that any time a relationship with someone in our lives, especially those closest to us in our own families, any time a relationship with another individual comes into conflict with our relationship with Jesus, and we have to at that moment make a choice, Am I going to listen to this person or listen to Jesus? Am I going to obey this person or am I going to obey Jesus? Because sometimes that happens. You just have to pick in that moment. I'm going to honor this family member or I'm going to honor Jesus. I'm going to try to preserve my relationship with this family member or I'm going to try to hang on to it with Jesus. And he's saying in those moments, if you're not willing to choose me over even your closest family members, you can't be my disciple. That's the essence. That's the heart of what he's, he's saying here. Okay. So, maybe it's helpful to think about some examples. Let's pretend one of your relatives advises you that uh, you go to a, a relative of yours and you tell them, I'm, I'm dating, I'm courting, I'm getting to know this, this young man, this young woman, and I'm thinking about whether I should marry them. And your relative says, ah, you know the best way to do that, to figure that out is? Sleep with the person. That's the best way to do it. I mean, after all, you got to know whether there's physical chemistry because if that's not there, you're going to have a terrible marriage. So you need to, what you need to do is sleep with young men, young women, and the one you have the most kind of physical chemistry with, that's probably the one you're going to have the best marriage with. So that's how you ought to determine who you're going to marry. Try them out before you marry them. And then you remember the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, do not commit sexual immorality. You see, you've got a a choice in that moment. And in that moment, if you're going to follow Jesus and be his disciple, you must regard, you must have more regard for the words of Jesus than the counsel of your relative. You've got to disregard the advice of your relative and go with the words of Jesus. I mean, if a friend says to you, come on, let's go get drunk. And you know, Jesus says, do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or if a friend says to you, hey, you want to watch the, the World Cup final? I know you don't have, you don't have DSTV, but uh, here, here's a link. You can stream it free, you know, on this website. And you go, oh, where, where's that coming from? You go, ah, someone's pirated it from, from this country. And it's fine. You just put a VPN in and you could just totally trick the system and watch this movie or, or watch this game, watch this match. Totally free. Don't worry about it. And you realize, oh, well, really what that is, is it's stealing. I'm stealing access to something without paying for it. And then you remember in your mind, Jesus said, let him who steals, steal no longer. You see, you've got a choice there to make. 
and you've got friends encouraging you to do this or try that, you must be willing to reject that friend's encouragements, maybe even potentially offend that friend and lose that friendship in order to maintain and preserve your friendship, your relationship with Jesus. I mean, perhaps your husband or wife might say to you, okay, so maybe you've been coming here to Heritage and you go home and you tell your spouse um, how excited you are about the church and all the good things that are going on, all the things you're learning, and your spouse says to you, ah, okay, it's fine. You want to keep meeting with those born-again Christians at Heritage, maybe even attend Bible study, small group, special events. That's fine, but I'll tell you what. I don't want you to join as an official member of the church. That's where I draw the line, especially if it's a a husband telling his wife that. I'm the head of this home. You will honor me and respect my wishes. I do not want you to join there as a member because I know what that involves. You're going to have to start then supporting the church with finances, brands that I've worked very hard for, and I don't want any part of that. But then you remember the words of Jesus and how he said through the apostles, Submit yourselves to the elders of a local church. Join yourself to a local body and give financially to support the work of that church. What Jesus is saying here is that we must be willing to rebel against our husbands or our wives' wishes in order to obey and follow the wishes of Jesus Christ. I mean, maybe your mother or father might say to you, Maybe some of you are hearing this now. Maybe you've heard this in the past. My son, my daughter, it's okay if you want to attend that that Baptist church. After all, I can tell that, you know, they're having a really good effect on your life. I see the positive changes. You seem happier. You seem different. You've you've met a a young man, a young woman. Things are going well for you. So I'm so glad that you're there at that, that Baptist church, that evangelical, maybe English, you know, church. Um... And it's fine, you want to be part of their activities, that's no problem. Maybe even be a member, that's, that's no problem. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you are baptized at that church by immersion, okay, you will be disrespecting and dishonoring your father and I. How we raised you, we baptized you as an infant. In the covenant of God, we raised you in the church. We made vows on your behalf as an infant. We raised you in a certain tradition. That means the world to us. And if you go and get baptized as an adult by immersion, just think about what you'll be saying about us. We will be so disrespected and shamed by that choice that you're making. It's like you'll be turning your back on this entire family. The tradition, the culture, the church that we, we raised you and we brought you up in. It's like you'll be just throwing it all away. And they either command you as a parent or they plead with you don't do it you don't need to do it there's no need to but as you've been just reading your bible right just been reading your bible and you see in there how clear as day it is that a person ought to be baptized by immersion after hearing and responding to the gospel and you say i've got to submit myself to jesus he said repent and and be baptized every single one of you for the remission of your sins got to do that if I'm going to follow him in obedience. You see what you've got to be willing to do? To completely dishonor and, in a sense, shame your parents, your family, your upbringing, in order to honor 
Jesus as king over your life. And you could, you know, I could multiply these examples, right? A boss or a colleague at work asks you to fudge some numbers on the paperwork to make him or the company more money or look better just to kind of save them. And you know what Jesus says. Don't lie, but speak the truth, every single one of you. And you, you're in this crisis. You've got a choice to make. You're going to try to maintain your, your relationship with your boss and honor him or your colleague? Or are you willing to totally lose that relationship in order to do what you know is the right thing in following Jesus, right? To honor him above them. Um, as I said earlier, I don't know many of you, and you don't, you don't, a lot of you really don't know me either. And uh, I don't intend at all to stand up here and tell you how much I've, I've suffered for following Jesus, okay? I just don't feel any liberty at all to do that in light of how much others are really suffering for Jesus around the world right now. I mean, being put to death for confessing him as the Lord of their life. Um, but I do want you to know that as I sit up here and I share the words of Jesus with you, they actually have had some application to my own life in some perhaps small way by, by comparison. Um, I was raised in a Roman Catholic church and family, an Italian-American family growing up. And it wasn't until I went off to varsity and graduated, started working um, as a chemist, that a co-worker shared the gospel with me. We started studying the Bible. And it was through a colleague at work that the Lord began to open my eyes to the truth and, and draw me to himself. And eventually, I was converted to Christ. And when I started to want to follow Jesus, I had to pay a cost. And some of you will be able to relate to this very much. Some of you have paid even more of a cost. I'm not standing up here boasting. I'm just telling you this has been real in my own life to a degree. And perhaps it's been real in your life too to the same or greater degrees. When I decided I was going to follow Jesus and be serious about that, I lost friends from varsity. These were friends who remained my friends after varsity. Even one was a roommate of mine. And... Uh, he continued to want to live in sexual immorality right in the very same flat that we were staying in. And at one point, I talked to him about it. And he was right. He just said, you're the one who's changed. When we agreed to live in this place together, I didn't sign up for these, these terms. Um, you know, I basically asked him, could you, could you kind of not do that here? You know, I'm, I'm wanting to follow Jesus. and It's not helpful for me. And he was an unbeliever. And I don't even know if that was the right thing to do. But I tried and it didn't work. And but I just, I had to make a decision. And for my own purity before Jesus, I had to actually just move out of that apartment. It actually caused real tension in our friendship, even to this day. I had other friends that uh, we used to get together almost every day together after work. We didn't work together, but we'd get back together. We lived in the same kind of area of flats. And we'd play sports together. Uh, we'd watch things together. We'd eat meals together. We'd hang out and party together over the weekends. And when they started to see that I was no longer interested in talking about those things or being a part of those things, it's very interesting what started to happen. Almost unspoken, I began to just not be invited around for certain things. I could tell that there were probably conversations happening among some of the people when I wasn't around. Like, what on earth has gotten into this guy? You know, like... He's the most depressed person anytime we want to party or talk about things that we love. And it's because I want to follow Jesus now. And God had changed my heart. And it, it really, it was very difficult for me. Those were my closest friends that I had. And I lost every single one of them. Every single one. Um, I couldn't maintain friendship with any of them. 
And maybe part of it was my own immaturity and the way I went about things and my pride, my misunderstanding. I'm not sure. But the large part of it was I wanted to now follow Jesus. And it was very clear they didn't. I tried to talk to some of them about him and it just was not of interest to them. And the things they wanted to talk about and participate in were no longer of interest to me. And so we just had to diverge and go our our separate ways. Um, Yeah, it it created issues for me in the workplace. Uh, I started to want to follow Jesus, and my ears all of a sudden got very sensitive to the things that I heard in the workplace. Um, Some of the mechanics where I worked, I worked in a grease manufacturing uh, company in the research development lab, but we'd you know, overlap in other areas of the, of the factory, they'd have the radio on and it would just be blaring talk radio and music that in the past I would have reveled in, I would have loved and enjoyed, but now it made me sick. I didn't want to hear it. I felt like it was defiling me. And so at one point I decided I'm going to talk to one of the mechanics and it was a guy who actually would profess to be a Christian. So I thought he's like the easiest target to talk to, right? At least I can appeal to him. He'll kind of get it. No dice, no way. I asked him about it, and he was like, are you kidding? Like, laughed and mocked. It was a mockery, you know, that I would even ask for such a thing, that I'd be offended by, by such things. I began to try to talk to some of my coworkers about Jesus, and it was just a matter of time uh, until eventually the vice president of the company walked in one day into the lab, and he said to me, and this is a guy who I had played pickup basketball with, like extramural basketball with at times, And we weren't super close, but we got on really well until I was increasingly serious about following Jesus. He said to me one day, very politely, he said, "Uh, Marco, uh, it was at the end of a conversation, I forget what preceded it, but he said um, something like, have you considered maybe looking for work elsewhere? (laughs) He's very polite about it. And I, I, I actually got, you know, what he was saying. And he didn't know it at the time, but the Lord had been, I think, putting in my heart actually to leave my job and to go out to seminary to uh, prepare for ministry. But he didn't know that, and so I, I told him that. But I just I mentioned that to say it was becoming such an issue, uh, tension and issues with my colleagues, that even the vice president, he knew of it, and then just sort of suggested, you know, that I think about finding work uh, elsewhere. I was happy to leave that place because uh, I thought that's what the Lord was leading me to. But it was very difficult leading up to that, the conversations, the interactions that I had. Uh, it cost me close relationships with family members, um, similar to my friends. It's like we couldn't, we couldn't talk about the same things anymore. We just couldn't get excited. we get together for holidays, like a Christmas, like a Thanksgiving in the States. We'd get around the table, we'd be eating, ready to catch up and excited, and they'd start talking about this sexual morality or this debauchery or this thing that they were into. And it was just like, I just, my heart wasn't there anymore. I wanted to follow Jesus. And that meant for me, not only was I not going to do that with them, but I wasn't going to laugh about it anymore. I wasn't going to approve of it or encourage it. And I I wasn't the most outspoken person. It's not like I immediately slammed my fist on the table and said, repent. You know, I I wasn't even doing that. But just the fact that I wasn't smiling and laughing, it it just cost those relationships. I mean, cousins that I was very close to, I haven't spoken to at this point in months, I wish our relationship was closer, that I could love them and have more opportunities for the gospel in their lives. But it's just what's happened is I've followed Jesus. Again, we've gone on divergent paths. It affected my relationship with my parents. I came home and told my mom that, uh, just I don't know if you know this, maybe you have a similar background. I know maybe not Catholic, but I grew up Roman Catholic. And um, I come home all of a sudden one day and tell my mom, 
A colleague at work has been sharing the gospel with me. I've been reading the Bible for myself, and I'm a born-again Christian now. My mom's eyes went like, you know, like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Jones. Jim Jones was a man who um, rose up in the United States, ended up being a cult leader, and he took a number of people uh, with him. And one day they decided, he decided he led them into a, a jungle and he had them drink uh, like a Kool-Aid, you know, like a juice together. And the people didn't know that it had been poisoned. It was like a mass homicide-suicide for some of those who knew. And so my mom, you know, you grew up Catholic. And I don't know what it's like for you guys exactly. But for my mom, in her mind, it's like you're Catholic or you're Jim Jones. <laughs> There's like nothing in between. You leave the Catholic Church, you're in some kind of cult, you've been brainwashed. And so when she hears a colleague of mine has been sharing with me, I'm born again, I'm going to follow Jesus now and do a different church and leave the Catholic Church, she's like, who brainwashed you? You know, she was very apprehensive and suspicious. And for many months, I think even years, um, it started to take a toll on our relationship. She would call me up, I was across the country, and she would start to give me, not start to, she continued to give advice, like any caring, concerned, loving mother does, right? She continued to be a loving mother and, and give me advice. But over time, she started to realize that, and I even sometimes had to tell her, Mom, thank you. I know you're sharing that with me because you love me, and I'm so glad that you love me and care enough to share. But I'd even say to her before we got off the phone, you know that I can't do that. I can't take your advice because now I'm following Jesus and here's what he says in the Bible. Even other times after I had done that enough that I felt like I didn't need to say it anymore, I'd just say thank you politely at the end of the call. Before she'd hang up, she'd go, you're not going to take my advice, are you? <laughs> she knew. And I said, no, you know I can't, Mom. And we'd laugh, you know, but, uh, but it was interesting. It really ruptured for a time my relationship with her. Um, I used to be closer to my mom, further from my dad, talk to my mom about everything going on in my life. And then when I became a Christian, my mom hadn't uh, repented, wasn't yet following Jesus. My dad did around the same time as I did. And we became so much closer. And my mom and I drifted like miles apart. I'd, I'd call up and, hi, mom. Hi, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Is dad there? You know, it was like I just had to hurry up to get on the phone with my dad because now we had this new bond in Christ when in the past we had been distanced. But now my mom... My mom and I, who used to be close together, we're now distanced. We just had two completely different ways of looking at the world and assessing situations and making decisions, and it led to tension. I mean, one time we had an argument in, in my home with my parents. I'm not proud of the argument that had happened, but I meant, you know, what I said. Maybe the way I said it was probably not right, but I just said to both my mom and dad at that time, I said, um, I don't know what you guys want to do with this situation, but I'm going to follow Jesus whatever that means for our relationship. There was something in me that, that the Spirit of Christ had just put there that was just willing to commit to follow Jesus, even if that meant I was going to have a really ruptured relationship with my parents. It affected my relationship with my brother. We've been estranged for years now. My brother wants nothing to do with Jesus. I think that is the primary present reason uh, why. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. I tried to be polite. I tried not to jam it down his throat. I've heeded his, his um, requests about that and things. He still won't return SMSs often, won't return phone calls. I mean, we don't talk. This is my only brother, by the way. I don't have other brothers and sisters to kind of say, oh, but I'm closer to them. I mean, it's totally ruptured my, my relationship with my only sibling um, because I want to follow Jesus and, and he doesn't.
like I said, I'm, I don't want to just multiply examples to you in, in my life, but, um, but there has been something of a, of a cost. I've had to prioritize Jesus in my life, and you probably have too, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, to some degree, even if it's different than what I just shared from my own life, you've had to pay some cost uh, to follow Jesus in this area. And if you haven't, because you haven't yet committed to follow Christ, you need to know that you will. It will cost you in some way close relationships with people in your life at some point, uh, maybe multiple times. Jesus is saying whenever that relationship with someone else comes into conflict with him, whether that means being baptized by immersion contrary to religious upbringing, whether that means standing on the truth of God's word, maybe some of you come out of maybe a health, wealth, prosperity background, and you still have family members who are in those churches that are teaching just devilish doctrines. They're being poisoned by those things. And you've got to wisely, humbly, but appropriately at times, speak out and say, that is not true. That's not what Jesus said. That's not biblical. Let me tell you the truth. And offend those people because that's what they either believe or what they're being taught at their church. Whether it means not approving of uh, or speaking out against a homosexual relationship that one of your friends is involved in, or a heterosexual relationship that involves premarital fornication. doesn't matter. Jesus is saying we must choose him over that relationship, be faithfully devoted to him. Otherwise, as I said, as Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Okay? Let me just say in closing... Just a final word. These are strong words, right? They challenge us. Maybe as some of us are hearing this tonight, um, we're being perhaps challenged, maybe provoked by the Spirit of God. Maybe a certain relationship is actually coming to mind as you hear me speaking tonight, as you hear the words of Jesus. Maybe as you think and pray over this, this week, maybe go and, and pray and ask God, Father, Lord Jesus, is there a relationship in my life that I am holding on to? that I'm devoted to more than I'm devoted to Jesus? Would you show me that and tell me what I need to do? The Lord will do that. That's what he wants out of you. That's what he's worthy of. Um, maybe you don't need to pray about it. You already know there's a relationship. There's someone you need to speak to. There's something you need to do. Maybe there's something you need to go back and undo, you know, or correct if you've made the wrong decision in the past. Do that, okay? That's what Jesus requires of us as his disciples. You can trust him with the consequences, Okay? So maybe these are challenging words tonight. Maybe they're convicting. There needs to be repentance. That's what you were praying for earlier, brother. There needs to be some repentance and action on our part in one or more relationships in our lives for Jesus' sake. But at the same time, I think these words can also and may already have had a very encouraging effect on some of us here tonight, or they will as you, you think about them in the week to come. And that might sound a bit strange, like, how can these words be encouraging? I find them convicting or challenging. Well, think about it with me. If we're going to be this committed, right, to Jesus, I mean, some people would call this radical commitment. It's so funny to me, I've not lived that long following the Lord, but I get the sense that nowadays we use this word radical, and all we're really doing is describing biblical New Testament Christianity. But we've got to use the word radical. You know why? Because we haven't been living, either generally or some of us individually, we haven't been living faithfully to just plain, simple New Testament Christianity. 
And so when someone does that, they stick out so much from the rest of so-called Christendom that they're radical, when really they're just genuine. You know? But we can use the term. You know? If we're going to be this radical, right, for Jesus, um, maybe we'll start to wonder at times, especially when it costs us in certain relationships, when it brings tension in the marriage, when it brings tension in the home, with your children, with your parents, at the workplace, with your classmates, whatever it is, um, when it starts to bring that tension, at some point, you might start to wonder, might be tempted to think, maybe I am being too radical for Jesus. Maybe I am being a, a fanatic. Maybe I am just sort of over the top. And, and Jesus, he really isn't calling me to this level of commitment. I mean, after all, the common denominator in all my tense relationships is me. And my commitment to Jesus, so maybe I'm the problem. And, you know, maybe what needs to happen is I just need to kind of cool off a little bit, right? I mean, just take a step back and take it easy. Maybe I've had it wrong. You might wonder that. Maybe I thought Jesus was calling me to this level of commitment, but maybe I've misunderstood him. And I can actually just sort of back off a little bit and preserve these relationships. I don't have to sever some of them or lose some of them or create tension in some of them in the name of obeying Jesus. Maybe I've had it wrong and I just need to kind of back off a little bit. Um, If you're tempted to think that, I think the words of Jesus tonight can be a real encouragement to you to say, don't back off. Don't back down. Don't cool off. Not for a minute, not for a second. Keep the pedal down full for Jesus. Now, don't be a jerk. Don't be impulsive. Don't act out in the flesh. But when the Spirit of Christ is clearly leading you by the words of Christ in the Scriptures to do this or say that, and it causes tension, or it brings jeopardy to a relationship, don't back down. Keep being faithful to Jesus. You're on the right path. This actually, for some of us, confirms that you're a true disciple of Jesus because you might say, you know what? At times I've blown it. At times I haven't been as devoted to Jesus as I ought to have been. But by God's grace, I can say overall, I have been committed to him. I have loved him more than any of my close family relationships. And I have paid a price to follow him. And it should be an encouragement to you that you're on the right path. Don't turn to the left or the right. Don't turn back. Don't second guess. Don't doubt. Keep trusting Jesus, being loyal and devoted to him Prioritize him above all other earthly relationship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to do that? These are challenging words. Really, these are impossible words for us to obey unless by your grace you put inside of us a love for you, a treasuring for you, a sight of your worthiness that compels us to follow you to prioritize you above every other earthly relationship. So would you help us to do that or to continue to do that? Father, forgive us where we have prized and prioritized other people over your son, Jesus. We want to repent here tonight. We want to forsake that sin. And we want to walk in the path of Jesus. He prioritized his relationship with you. And he obeyed you even unto death by crucifixion at Jerusalem. Help us to do the same, to follow in his footsteps, to follow him and to hold on to him and to let go of any other relationships, any other close family members that would get in the way 
of obeying and honoring him. Lord, help us to do that. You're worthy of it. We want you to be glorified. We want others to see what a treasure, a superior treasure you are to us than any other person. Would you be exalted in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.